how God does things, that a prophecy or a historical event then become things in the past, have been repeated, some of them more than once already. So there are several fulfillments, and God has such deep understanding of human nature and of events and what would transpire when and how that he is able to use something knowing that it will repeat later. And what an incredible mind and understanding he has. Uh, We can barely predict lunch, uh, but he, thousands of years ahead of time, can tell you exactly what's going to happen and what manner of person will be used for this, that, or the other thing, what nations will do. And I think it's critical for us, as we look at this section here in the first part of Isaiah, to realize that there are some recurring things here about uh, Ephraim being destroyed, about God's people in Zion and how he will dwell in Zion and things of that nature, knowing that this is upon us and that from some point in time there, as we've read more than once over the years, Ephraim is going to be broken within a 65-year period, and I pointed out some possibilities on that the other day. We know we're very near the end of it. We know since we've been using Emmanuel that There has been time that a child will be almost old enough to know the knowledge of good and evil. And from the time that uh, Isaiah and his wife conceived a child, uh, which was a little further down the road, before it was even able to say, Daddy and Mommy, that the Assyrian would come upon us. Now, the New World Order, and even the president of Iran now is calling for a New World Order. What you have to realize is that most of the leaders of this world, of the various nations, are all Masons. And they talk with each other behind the scenes much, much more than what you see in the headlines. And if this coalition is to come together and become a world-ruling empire, which the Scriptures plainly says it is, they need they would already be in the planning stages of it because we're getting very close to it. And the whole global uh, economic system is about to implode and fall apart, and even the mainstream media now is beginning to talk about that. So it's something that is imminent. Now, it talks here about God's people being protected in Zion and so on. And I think it's very important for us to consider where we are. Why are we here at this place? Uh, should we be in the Zion at the Jerusalem and the Middle East? Is the abomination going to be set up there or over here? Uh, this can be a life and death issue to be in the right place at the right time. Now, we need to be sure that we're in the right place considering what we're reading right here in Isaiah about what is about to happen, and we'll continue that today along with some more comments in the text about where we need to be. So, as we, through the feast, begin to consider the information that some of you compiled, some I've compiled, uh, that we have, we need to know. This isn't academic. 
This isn't an intellectual exercise. We need to be in the right place, the right time, worshiping the right being in the right way. And it is critical to know where that is. So most of us here, if not all of us here probably, have been studying some of these things for quite some time, and we came out here out of the cities into a wilderness area, more or less, within Babylon. Uh, had the series on Babylon to prove what the modern-day Babylon is and which one is going to be destroyed. And when we went through there and looked at all the scriptures about modern Babylon, the only place it could possibly fit is America. It wasn't uh, Zimbabwe, you know, or somewhere like that. We're the only nation that could fulfill all the roles that are mentioned in all those descriptions. So, with that in mind, and with Zion in mind, uh, enough of us saw an importance in Zion, and we felt that this was probably the correct Zion. So here we are. Were we correct? Or was it a mistake? Now, some have been a little, having a little difficulty understanding that Jerusalem could be here as well, but consider the thought that Jerusalem and Zion in Scripture are put together continually. And if indeed this is the true Zion, then Jerusalem could not be far away. Either that or we got the wrong Zion. <laughs> because you can't separate the two in Scripture, and therefore they have to be close together. And here we are, all of us here, meeting at the base of the hill, which may be the holy hill of Jerusalem, but you wouldn't find very many people on earth that would agree with that statement. Uh, essentially, I think everyone here agrees with that. You may still have questions in your mind, and that's fair. I don't have a problem with that, but that's one reason I want to go through this, because I want in my own mind to be sure of what I'm saying. I don't want to lead you astray. I want to be in the right place when the right time comes, and I want you to be in the right place when the right time comes. So I think that we need very much to go through to bolster what understanding we may have and to determine, perhaps once and for all, uh, where is correct. Because it could be life and death. There are still people, a lot of people in the church, that think they want to go to Petra. Well, is that right or is that wrong? Now, if it's right, they may save their lives. If it's wrong, there may be thousands and thousands of people that just simply perish because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I don't want to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I want us to know whereof we speak, and know what would please God. So let's go back to uh, these scriptures here in Isaiah, because as I said last time, uh, it keeps going back and forth from the international discussion to the church, and how the church fits in with the political and military things that are going on. Uh, around the world, and what our relationship will be to them, and where they will oppose us, and how much they will oppose us, and what to expect. 
Well, we've already read those where he says, don't fear them, fear me. And go through some of that. Uh, but we came down to uh, the end of chapter 8 last time. And twice here it said, bind up his testimony and seal the law among his disciples. And I think one of the reasons, I'll, I'll make a few more comments about that, even though I've already covered it and moved on, a lot of that is for our benefit to know what we need to be doing, is considering all the words of God and the testimony he gives and his law. But part of it here probably also is so that we might recognize deception when it comes. Christ said, if it were possible, they would receive, deceive the very elect. This thing which is coming, the Antichrist, the beast power, is going to be so powerful, it deceives almost the whole world. And even these Protestant preachers who are preaching about the Antichrist to come and are reading the scriptures and seeing what the scriptures say about it, and telling people to watch out for it, are themselves going to be deceived about it even though they are expecting it to come. Because only the true people of God will be able to discern the difference. To me, that means it is going to be such a powerful, such a compelling thing, that even people who are expecting it will be caught off guard and not understand it. And many, many in the church are going to be deceived by it. So it's, a, in that sense, a scary thing that's coming. But not only do we need to consider verse 16 and verse 20 from the standpoint of what we need to be doing, but I think we need to consider it in terms of how to recognize the difference between the beast and God's way and God's people. I do not believe the beast power and the Antichrist are going to be keeping the Ten Commandments. They're not going to be keeping the whole Word of God. They will have some kind of hybrid religion that probably includes the Bible, so you can suck in Christians, but it's got to include the Muslims and the Shintoists and the Buddhists and the the atheists, and everybody else. And there must be some incredible displays coming out of the heavens in some way that would just have the world enraptured. Plus an economic system <clears throat> that will promise to bring them back from poverty and starvation and dying. So that it will seem to the world like this is the kingdom of God come. That's God and this is his kingdom. I don't think we could emphasize the power of this movement enough. Uh, we can be very simple and go on our way saying, oh, we'll be easy to recognize. Even the very elect would be deceived. I don't know anyone here who considers himself to be very elect. Uh, if we're even elect, <laughs> you know, we look at ourselves and we look at our shortcomings and... Uh, I, I would have very strong difficulty saying, well, I'm one of the very elect, I'll be okay. Wouldn't you? 
as we struggle with ourselves. So let's recognize what we need to be doing from these scriptures, but let's also recognize what the beast and the false prophet will also need to be doing. Uh, the testimony of this book is what is the final judge of that. And they will want us to go to people uh, motivate, motivated by demons. It, it doesn't have to be a crystal ball and somebody that sits in a dark corner and, and reads your palm. You know, we, we think of seances and so on like that. But uh, Satan and his demons become quite familiar with human beings and with the leadership of this world. And the leaders of this world are being led right now by Satan into developing this new world order that is about to come down on us. So it is well planned and well underway as we're getting this close. This isn't going to be something that's thrown together in the last 15 minutes before they decide to announce it to the world. They've been working on this nation now for decades and decades to destroy our religious system, to destroy our economic system. Uh, they're working to destroy our military. They're making alliances with other nations to help bring us down. All this stuff is going on even as we speak. So we need to be ready. And that's one reason I wanted to go through this section so that we might see the imminency of that. And with that in mind, then go into where should we be? Where is the right place? And we'll examine the information involved in that. Anyway, he says, if they don't speak according to the law and to the testimony of God and this word, it is because there is no light or illumination in them. They do not have true knowledge unless they have the knowledge of God. And then it talks about how they'll go through terrible times not having God's word, not having his direction. So let's pick it up in chapter 9 then, and I want to finish this section today, chapters 9 and 10. It says, nevertheless, speaking of the dimness and darkness in verse 22 of the last chapter, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So even though this prophecy, beginning in chapter 7, is more about Ephraim, I think that comments such as this one in verse 1 indicate that some of the other tribes of Israel will also be getting it in the neck, uh, either with or shortly thereafter, from the time that our nation falls. Uh, because they are part of our system. So it, it's not going to be in the lightness that Zebulun and Naphtali uh, had at one point, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. So he's speaking of at least two different times when the parts of Israel were afflicted, uh, once pretty lightly and then once heavier. Then he says, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has the light shined. Now, America, as a superpower, as a nation, as a tribe of Israel, the leading tribe Ephraim, is going to be destroyed. We walk today 
We drive about in the land of the shadow of death. The shadow of death is upon us. God has pronounced that this nation will die. So that's the nation it's speaking of here. And who has the light? Who has been illumined? We have. God has shown us all that is about to come down. The ones who are developing this new world system to come down call themselves, the one thing they call themselves is the Illuminati, or the Illumined Ones. But they walk in the darkness of Satan. It's a false light. Only those who have the light of God have light in them, as we saw in verse 20 of the previous chapter. So, we walked in darkness, didn't we? And then God opened our eyes to see his truth. We have a church today, Worldwide Church of God Exploded, which is again pretty much in darkness. They don't understand what is going on to this day, over a quarter century after it began to blow up. And they're dwelling in the shadow of death and don't even know that they don't know. Most of them are still expecting to go to Petra. Most of them still think we ought to be preaching the gospel around the world as a witness. And they try to futilely go about that with very, very little impact. So what they're doing is not working. And you might say, well, what we're doing isn't working either. We're not growing by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, if anything, at the moment we're shrinking a bit. Uh, that's okay. How many of them would come here? How many of them, if we told them, would see? They wouldn't. In fact, it's on the website. It goes worldwide on our website. Anybody on this earth that can get to a internet cafe, wherever they might be, this information is available to. It's not being done in that sense in a corner. There may just be a few of us in person listening, but anybody can get on it. It doesn't matter who. The things I've said about Jerusalem and that that's a false place over there, they're all on tape. They're all on the Internet. Uh, people could listen if they wanted to. They don't want to. They think we're crazy as a loon. Well, we shall see. I think God has showed us a great light. You have multiplied the nation, and in, it, should not, it shouldn't read not, that uh, is added. Uh, you have multiplied the nation, my margin says, and to him increase the joy. They joy before you according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now this is a prophecy that Isaiah... Uh, echoes in chapter 54, where he says thereafter the Passover and what Christ did, that the tent is to be expanded, and people will come, and they'll come with laughing and singing and happiness and joy, that they see an answer to the problems that the church has had all these years, and that is not being resolved. Well, God is giving us the inside information on where to be, what to do, and to be prepared to help those people when they come. And they will certainly have their joy increased.
For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. Now he tells us there in Isaiah 52 that we are to break the yoke of Babylon off our neck, to quit being walked on, to sit up, to quit being trodden on. Uh, That's just before it says the two witnesses will see eye to eye at the time when God turns this thing around, then the Passover, then the people come. And that may be giving us a timeline as well, too, that it will happen right after Passover, whether it's this year or next year or whenever it is. But the timeline in terms of the time of year, uh, the early and latter rains come in the first month as well. So there are a lot of things that point possibly to that being the eventuality. Uh, And he says that burden and that rod of the oppressor will be broken as in the day of Midian. Well, Midian was where Gideon's army was. Remember, there were thousands and thousands of people who showed up, and uh, then the test was given as to who would be sorted out and who would stay. And uh, God kept cutting the number down, cutting the number down. And finally, the last test was those that picked water up in their hands and remained watchful, and those who bowed down in the creek and sucked the water out of the creek bed. And he said the ones who drank out of their palms were the ones he wanted. There were only 300. So God kept lowering the size of the army until he got it down where everybody would have to recognize God did this, not Gideon and his army. So that's what we're looking at. God does things to start in a small way to show his hand, to show who he is. That's what's important. For every battle of the warriors with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. As you remember, they broke the lamps and shouted when the 300 men with Gideon surrounded the Assyrian army there. Well, how many was it? 300,000 died, if I remember the story right, something like that. Uh, they turned on each other and killed each other. So... Using this example, he says, every battle of the warrior is with confused noise. They hear the noise, they get confused, and they start killing anything they see. There wasn't anybody there but them. So they killed each other. And garments rolled in blood. They cut each other, hacked each other to pieces. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Uh, He uses trial, trouble, and tribulation, uh, tried in the fire, several different scriptures, indicating that. uh, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Not to them, but to us. Now if you go back to chapter 7 and pick that up, it said a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That one is given to the church. Christ is for the church, not for the Baptists, not for the Catholics, not for the Hindus. His bride is the church. So it is the church and the faithful part of the church, one of the virgin daughters of the church, that the child will be born to. So he brings chapter 7 forward in the story here to this time of affliction and us walking in a nation that is under the shadow of death, and it is under those conditions 
but the Son of God will be revealed to the church. Now, we already know about Christ, don't we? Yes. But he has not come to dwell with us, as Zechariah 2 says he will do. He still has, at least in part, his face turned from us. Maybe we're getting close to the point it will turn to us. As we obey him, I think he's turned it to us to some degree to motivate us to even come to this very place, because I think it's a very important place, and I don't think he wanted anyone to come here until the time was right and the people were right. So he has had a hand in causing who is here today to be here. I don't say that to make us feel important or to blow our horn or give us the big head. I say that to encourage us that God wanted us here for a purpose that fits his plan. So it is not us that are important. It's his plan and him that is important. We are only important as we are tools that can be used in God's hand to accomplish something for him. And I think it is very clear there at the end of Zechariah 2 and the first verse or two or three of Zechariah 3 that Satan resists the idea of Jerusalem being chosen again. And that he makes it very clear to Satan that this is his work that is to be done. Uh, and that he would resist Satan if Satan tried to stop it. And I think that Satan has tried to stop us being here this very day. In several different ways he's tried. And it didn't work. We're here. And we can thank God for that. I know I personally can, because if my pickup about ten days ago had landed where it was headed, I wouldn't be here. Um, Those wheels had just gone off the edge of that concrete. It would have flipped right over and gone head on into the bank at 60 miles an hour. And I did a quick three-word prayer, and the wheels pulled back over and went just inside the concrete, but the trailer hit it and made kindling out of it. But I was in the truck and stayed upright. Now, that's just a personal experience. But I was the one that was leading this, and I think Satan tried to destroy me right there. And I think God prevented it from happening. But he made it he saved just me and destroyed my trailer, so I'm in a little 6 by 10 covered aluminum trailer. It's still better, I guess, than a canvas tent. It's aluminum. Uh, nevertheless, uh, he has tried to pull people. He has tried to kill people. Uh, several of you have experienced things over the last few weeks that have been very, very difficult in terms of attitudes, in terms of trials and troubles and sicknesses and just name it. Uh, I maybe have seen it more because I get more reports from, you know, somebody says, well, this happened to me, and somebody else says, this happened to me, and you might not all be aware of a lot of things that have happened over the last few weeks or a couple, three months. But I've, I've been in sitting in a position where I would hear it from this one, that one, and the other one, And I can see that there's been a lot of trial, trouble, tribulation, difficulty, and attitude, and on and on it goes, uh, as well as reversals, perhaps financially, or or like I had with the the loss there, uh, in danger of death even. So I think Satan has resisted us, very much so. 
And he would turn us if he could. We've even had some physical deaths that are very, very trying and sore to deal with. Uh, you know, long-time mates. A couple people here that lost their mates. Now, it, it might not have been connected here in any way, but what does it do? It puts an additional burden on the surviving mate in an incredible way and could turn you away. It could cause you to become discouraged or, you know, whatever. But we know that God is working, that his word is true, and that this testimony that we're reading we can depend upon. So this information we're looking at today in this book is true. And what it says is coming down in this nation and the world very soon now is true. So we're here to very deeply consider some things and to be ready for what is coming. For that child is born to us. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, why does he say that in this context? Because the world and this consortium, confederacy, conspiracy of nations back here in chapter 8 is planning on ruling the world. That's their goal and their purpose. And Satan is their leader. And he wants to continue to rule the world. But he who has already qualified to displace him is coming. So he emphasizes that, I, that Christ is coming to his church, to his bride. That's who he's coming to. And he is going to rule the world in righteousness. And it mentions a lot of his titles here because people out in this world are going to start taking titles upon themselves and showing that they are such a great much. But he is not going to allow it to happen. Beyond, It will happen for a very short time. But he's our ruler. He's our leader. He's our husband. Uh, the everlasting father. Well, what about the father? What about his father? Well, Christ is the father in another way. Because if we're to be the bride of Christ, all these children that survive into the millennium and the great white throne judgment will be the father and mother of. So even though his father is there, he'll be in that sense more in the grandfather uh, relationship in the family. Now, I'm sure he'll still be called the father. But the relationship would be uh, in fulfilling more the role of grandfather because Christ and his bride will be the father and mother of the nations, of the peoples. So it fits here. And this will not be a short-lived kingdom. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Now, we're not talking about the millennium here, are we? We're talking still about the Assyrian. We're talking about the Confederacy. We're talking about a land dwelling in the shadow of death. But just before this, it says to us, a child is born. 
In other words, we're here to begin something. We're here with his direction to begin something that is going to increase and increase until it goes around the world. And he says, I will come to you. I will dwell with you. I will be with you and help you get this end time work done so that it then may be magnified once you're made immortal to the whole world. So he, he starts about a little church, a little organism called to do a work, and then he shows how it will expand. And he even does that in the context of the end times. Because he's not talking about a sudden transition here while these armies are still running all over the place when the kingdom of God will be here. Obviously not. But the kingdom of God starts small and grows. And then it takes worldwide significance when the Father and the Son and the Holy City come down there in Revelation 21. Then he says, the zeal of the eternal of hosts will perform this. This is something that is going to happen. The eternal sent a word into Jacob, and it is lighted upon Israel. Now, he tells us there in Isaiah 40. Maybe I'll flip back there just for a moment. Comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Eternal's hand double for all her sins. She's gone through trial, trouble, tribulation to prepare her. But there's coming a point, which it says right there in Zechariah 3, when her sins will be forgiven in one day. In other places, the same thing is said. So he's saying, comfort them, that the end of our trouble, our tribulation, is near. And then a voice is to cry in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In the desert, a highway for God. Well, if you've already got Jerusalem established, if we've already got a nation over there, there's a place there, isn't there? Well, this is preparing a place in the desert out of almost, apparently out of nothing, in the wilderness. In the wilderness. Not in a city that's already there. Not in something that's already established. Somewhere else. And then he goes on down and shows how, in verse 5, the glory of the eternal shall be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. I'll tell you what, if he begins to do something here, and we build Jerusalem, or build a temple, and then later Jerusalem, he shows very clearly the whole world's going to see it and hate it. <laughs> so that fits right here, that God is going to reveal that. And then the voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? Now, if we were already into the millennium where the glory of the Lord in a millennial setting has been revealed, then why would you cry anything? But he says, cry, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodness thereof is as a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Eternal blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. 
and it withers as the flower fades. So this is a prophecy when some of these things are still going to be coming down. The man will wither like grass in the sun. It's not speaking of the millennium because then everything will start blooming and blossoming. This is just the opposite. So he says, you that bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. You that bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, because he's coming with a strong hand. So this is premillennial. It will bleed on into the millennium and get bigger, but God starts small. So God sent word to Jacob, and it is lighted upon Israel. It isn't very well known, but it's coming. And all the people shall know. Well, it indicates then that they didn't know. Here's something that they're going to find out. Then they will know. Even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria that say in the pride and stoutness of heart. Now, think about that for a moment. Why Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria? Samaria included all the tribes. Ephraim was the leader. This is a prophecy not about what we call Israel or the Jews today. This is something that lights in the land of Ephraim and all of the tribes of Israel are going to find out about it. How many Ephraimites do you think there are in the land of Israel over there today? There's mostly Edomites, mostly in Palestinians, half-breed Arabs, and a few true Jews. There are essentially no Ephraimites, Gadites, uh, Manassites, all the other Zebulonites, all the other tribes. They're not there. So is this a prophecy about there? Or is it somewhere else in the land of Ephraim where we are? All these people will know. The ten lost tribes, if you please. That say in the heart and the pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. I hear, I see on the internet articles now and then about some of these preparedness bugs that are saying, well, there's all this trouble's coming, but it's going to pass over. And we want to see it come because two or three years from now, once if you had enough food and you had enough guns, when it all blows over, then those who save gold and silver and ammo will be in good shape. Everybody else is going to be killed off with the riots and the trouble coming. They see what's coming, but they don't see it all. They think it's going to last for a year or two or three, and then they will join hands and solve the problems and build it better than it ever was. That's what they're saying on the Internet and on the radio. I haven't heard it there, but that's what they're saying, all these preparedness people. Yeah, it's all falling down, but we'll fix it, just like God is prophesying. They're saying it this very day. And God wrote this thousands of years ago about this land. The land... They're even saying it in, in Western Europe. Everything's going to be okay. We'll ride out this financial thing, 
and then everything will be all right. Therefore, the Eternal shall set up the adversaries of Rezin against him and join his enemies together, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. You can read quite a few different prophecies about Israel is going to die, Ezekiel 5, famine, pestilence, and the sword, and a third taken into captivity, and only a remnant surviving. This is another one like this. Go back to Psalm 83 and see that conspiracy or confederacy of peoples, different nations, that are going to join together to destroy this country and the rest of the tribes of Israel. But even that does not solve God's anger. For the people turn not to him that smites them, neither do they seek the eternal of hosts. Even in all the trouble that's coming and the captivity that's coming upon this nation, God's saying, I'm doing it. I'm behind it. I may let Satan and his demons do the actual damage like they did to Job, but I'm the one that's directing it. And they're not going to turn to the one that's actually smiting them. You know, the church is in that same position. God says, I spewed you out of my mouth. I scattered you. And yet, nearly everybody in the church says, well, the devil did this. Or this was Tkach's fault. You know, whoever they blame it on. Or that other church over there. Not me, not us, not God. God didn't do this to us. We're God-fearing people. We still keep the Sabbath and the feast. And the very one who's turned his face from us and smitten us is the one that people are not turning to wholeheartedly. Now, I know we face a bit of a crisis as well. We've been preaching this, teaching this, reading these scriptures for a long, long time now. I mean, not centuries, but for 12 years in this little group right here. And I know that it can get to the point where you say, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I guess it is, but it's been so long and we can get tired, we can get weary, we can lose our focus, we can quit trying to seek God as wholeheartedly as we've been urged to by the Scriptures and by me. Does it get to the point where I, I keep reading these things, but you say, oh, yeah, well, there we go again. We've got to hear that again. Well, I hope that's not the case. Or I hope if it is, we'll consider these things even today in the light of what is now beginning to truly happen in the world, it isn't something projected for the future anymore. It's right here. It's happening as we speak. And we need to be ready. You know, it, there are scriptures there where Christ says that they'll, they'll get weary. They'll slumber and sleep. And then a cry will come. And how many will have oil in their lamps? How many will be filled with the Holy Spirit and how many will have kind of just kind of let it slide? So yeah, I can cry wolf, 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 wolf and pretty soon you get to saying, yeah, well, yeah, ain't no wolf. 
Well, the wolf's getting closer and he's getting hungrier. The uh, the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. They're making plans, as we sit here today, to destroy this country. And our leaders are shaking hands with them and agreeing with them and preparing to destroy us, to sell us down the river. They've already been doing it in many, many ways in this country for years. We're more socialistic, we're more communistic than we were. The major leaders of this nation today are just outright communists. You can see by their fruits. That's, they talk like communists, they walk like communists, they act like communists, and they are, and fascist. Kind of a, an amalgamation of all those things. That's why we have more and more socialism coming on us and more and more people on welfare and more and more people on this and that. So that they get more and more dependent on the government and they're destroying the middle class so that you only have the lead at the the elite at the top, just like the communist system has always done, and then you have a lot of poor people who share everything that's left in common. That's what is going on in this country right now. It has been for a long time, and we're getting very, very close to that. Small businesses are going out of business right and left, and the megacorps are surviving. That's what they have planned what our leaders are doing to us. We'll read that here in a moment, too. I think it's here. Anyway, they don't turn to God. Therefore, the Eternal will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush, in one day. It's coming very quickly. Read Revelation 18. It shows in one day about the merchants crying that their market has been destroyed. They can't sell their goods anymore. We have made the nations rich. It's been our market that has done that. So he's going he's gonna to destroy it. Head and tail pretty well takes care of the whole thing. Everything in between, doesn't it? For the leaders of this people cause them to err. To go the wrong way. To make mistakes. And the fatherless. They're planning on doing away with the Social Security system, the welfare system, so that those who have the greatest need will have it taken away. We've already gotten to the place the Social Security system is going to collapse. They already know that. They've already planned that. And it's going to happen. That'll affect a lot of you. You're going to be in the right place at the right time. What will you do in the day of visitation? What will you do when all this stuff starts coming down? And in the desolation which shall come from far, what are you going to do? You better have the right answers. Where will you leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. Even most of the church will be slain and fall under the others that are slain. Martyred, if they try to follow God's way, or just killed along with the others as they kill them. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So our own leaders will sell us down the river, incarcerate us, put us in these prison camps, start killing us, cut off that which was sustaining us, but his hand is still stretched out. O Assyrian, the rod of my anger, and the staff in their hand is my indignation. 
So when the Assyrian leads this confederacy against Ephraim and Manasseh and the rest of the tribes of Israel, the staff that they use, the power that they have, is going to be of God. He is sending them upon us because of our national sins. I will send him against a hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. It's going to happen right here real soon. Howbeit he means not so, neither does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. I, I know of a man that's in the church of God who is Germanic in background, and he doesn't believe there ever was a holocaust. He doesn't believe the German people could do such a thing. And he doesn't believe they're coming to destroy the nation now in spite of all these scriptures because I'm a German and we don't think that way. Well, God says they don't think this is so. They don't think that's in their heart. But they do it anyway. They did it in World War I, World War II, didn't they? But they don't look upon themselves as being that way. And yet God says they are, and they're going to do it again. Well, he says, this is of me. The power, the strength, the staff in their hand is coming from me. And we are a hypocritical nation. No doubt about that. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Calno as Carchemish? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? Uh, as my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? He says, look at all these people I've conquered. I can do the same thing to you. And God says, well, yeah, <laughs> he's going to do. Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Eternal has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. So this stretches out to the church. Keep your finger there. Let's go back for a moment to Micah. Because it ties in very well here. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, there you are. Uh Chapter 4, in the last days. So there is the time setting of this prophecy. The law shall go forth out of Zion, into chapter 2, and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. How come none of God's people are over there? How, who, who's going to preach it? Nobody over there going to preach it. Well, maybe they got the wrong Jerusalem. We'll, we'll examine that. Anyway, he talks about every man sitting under his own vine and under his own fig tree, verse 4. You know, the other, only other place that that's mentioned in the Bible is in Zechariah 3, end of the chapter, where it's introducing Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two witnesses in the end-time church. This is a prophecy about the last days. It's not a prophecy about the millennium. Now, it may extend to that, but it's not talking about that time. It's talking about now. Verse 6, he says... I will assemble her that halts and gather her that is driven out and her that I have afflicted. Didn't he say this was of him? And I will make her that halted or was crippled a remnant and her that was cast off a strong nation. And the eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion 
from henceforth, from the time these latter-day prophecies begin to take pass, and then even forever. And you, O tower, or watchman, should be, of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. So this daughter, whoever she is, is a daughter of Zion. Hebrews 12 shows us that can mean a daughter of the church, but there are other scriptures put together that show that it is from the true Zion of God, the physical location as well. And he tells us to change locations physically just a few verses from here, in fact. Unto you shall I come even the first dominion, the beginning of the rule of the end-time church that then extends into the millennium. So he's going to give to a small daughter of the church the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So this daughter, whoever she is, is going to be ensconced in Zion and Jerusalem, wherever that may be. Then he says, Now why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For pangs have taken you like a woman in travail, like giving birth. Very painful process. Would you say we've been going through a pretty painful process in the church lately? I would. And then he says, be in pain. You know, if you get pregnant and you're going to have a baby, you can put it off as long as you can. That's about nine months. That's all you're going to put it off, and it's going to happen. So he says, I use this analogy because he says, I want you to be in pain, and I want you to bring forth, to labor and bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail, for now, when we're under these troubles, when we see our king dead, our counselor perished, Herbert Armstrong and the church falling apart, it's like you're going into labor, pain that won't let up. Now, under those conditions, he says, when that happens, when you find yourself under these conditions, our leader dead, in pain, in confusion, and frustration. Now, in other words, when that happens, and it has, shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the open places, as it should better be translated, not a pasture, but other places show desert and wilderness, like we just read in Isaiah 40. And you shall go even to Babylon. So this nation is the modern Babylon. You leave its cities, you go away from there into the desert and the wilderness, but you stay in Babylon. Does it say to go to the Middle East, or does it say to stay in Babylon? Maybe you better prove where Babylon is. I did a long series of sermons going through all those scriptures to show who the modern Babylon is. Well, the church is in this nation, which is the modern-day fulfillment of Babylon at the moment. Now, the whole worldwide system, after the beast and false prophet destroy the woman, us, Israel, the great whore of Ezekiel 16, after that is done, then another Babylon is going to come, a greater, bigger, worldwide. But we're the first one. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. 
America is the leader of Babylon will fall, and another, another will arise whom Christ will destroy at the power of his coming. But wherever Babylon is, it says God's people are there. That's where their king was. It's where their counselor was. It's where they went into pain. So when you flee from the cities of Babylon, it's going to be where you are that you flee from. Where was most of the church? Chicago, New York, Dallas, Miami, Seattle, L.A. It wasn't over there. None of the church is there. Has anyone ever suggested that that Israel in the Middle East is Babylon? I've never heard it. I've heard it of this country from even Protestants. I've heard it of of other places or a worldwide consortium, which is coming, but I've never heard anybody accuse that Israel over there of being Babylon. And we aren't there, so how do we flee its cities and go to its wilderness? See what I mean? This is where our leader and our counselor perished. Go even to Babylon. So the wilderness part of Babylon, not the cities. There shall you be delivered. Not somewhere else. Not in Petra. Not in the Middle East. There. Within Babylon. Now, if you don't agree with me and you haven't proved where Babylon is, you might better do that. Go back through the series if you don't get the picture clear. And if you don't see it there, then you better start thrashing around pretty rapidly and find out where it is. Because if you're to leave its cities and go and dwell in its desert and wilderness, how do you leave from somewhere you ain't? I wonder. <laughs> I think it becomes pretty self-evident. There shall you be delivered. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Didn't he say to cry out in the wilderness that the people is grass, that this thing's coming down? That's the message. Now, verse 11, Now also many peoples or nations are gathered against you that say, Let her be defiled and let our eye look down upon Zion. As God's work begins to grow, they're going to hate it with a passion because it goes against the grain of the New World Order. The U.S. will have been destroyed. But we're going to see here, as we go back to Isaiah, that uh, maybe even the church may be indicated here are going to have a little bit of difficulty with uh, the Assyrian. I didn't quite get to it yet, but we'll, we'll get there in a minute. But I'll, I'll read this ahead of time, and then when we get to it, you'll see what I mean. But they know not the thoughts of the Eternal, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves to the floor. So he says, our enemies that come against us, he's going to gather together like sheaves out of the field that have been gathered into the threshing floor to have the grain beat out of them. And he tells the church, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. I'm going to gather them up like sheaves to be threshed, and I want you to thresh them. For I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves brass, and you shall beat in pieces many people, like you beat the sheaves of grain. 
And I will consecrate their gain unto the eternal and their substance to the eternal of the whole earth. God says in Haggai, the gold and the silver is mine. And everything they have, when the church takes charge, is going to belong to God's people. Now then he tells us about the Assyrian here a little bit. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. Prepare for battle. They've laid a siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, Christ was born in Bethlehem. Another name for it was Ephrata. Uh, there's an Ephrata up in Washington State. I don't know of one in Kongqing, China, but there is one in Washington State. Though you be little among the thousands of Judah, just a small town where Christ was born, yet out of you shall he come forth to me that is to be ruler in Israel. Now, I think he's talking here because he's still talking before Christ returns. Now, ultimately, Christ would fulfill this uh, scripture because that's where he did come from, and he's going to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. But he is going to give the church power over the nations for a while. You think you're going to have to start collecting guns for this? No. No. We'll read on. We'll see how it's going to happen. Uh, bear in mind that he says in Revelation 11, the two witnesses will be able to destroy whomsoever they wish and, and cause plagues wherever they, whenever and wherever they want to. And if anybody tries to destroy them, fire will come out of their mouths and destroy their enemies. Now, that's some pretty powerful stuff. That's the church, two leaders of the church. So out of the church is going to come he who is the leader of spiritual Israel here at the end time, ultimately, of course, replaced by Christ over the whole world. But this is still end time prophecy here. Who's going forth have been from of old, from everlasting, showing that it is indeed ultimately Christ. Therefore will he give them up until the time that we, she which travails, remember over there, birth pangs, a woman in travail, has brought forth. She has produced Christ in her life, produced her, his power in the world, and brought something forth other than just gas, as one place in Isaiah says. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. So God is going to give power, and then people are going to wake up and begin to come. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the eternal. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> and this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. I think it's speaking of Zerubbabel here, who is a type of Christ on a smaller scale, and Christ fulfilling it much later. To be the one who is able to bring peace when the Assyrian comes after us. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Not a large army. Didn't he say it would be like in the days of Gideon? Not a big deal. 
but God's power will be shown. Didn't he tell Zerubbabel, not by spirit, not by might, but by, or not by power or strength, but by my spirit, says the eternal. There in Zechariah 4. So God is going to give a man power, and then will raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. And the remnant of Jacob (coughs) shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the eternal. Not Judah, not Israel over there, but Jacob, the tribes of Israel. He's been talking about the church which is within primarily Ephraim and Manasseh today. This is where the Assyrian is coming. And the church will be in our borders, this land, destroying it. But he will be stopped when he tries to take the remnant daughter of Zion and wipe her out too. And believe me, Satan knows who we are, and so do the governments of this world. Let's not be naive. They know who we are. If they don't, they'll find out real soon. Now, let's go back to Isaiah 10 with those thoughts in mind and move on down a little bit. Um, I think I left off there about verse 17. The light of Israel shall be for a fire and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns. No, I wasn't down that far. I think I must have left off there about uh, 12. When the Eternal has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. And we went back to Micah 4 and 5 and saw some more of the work that he's going to do and how he's going to use the church to do it. I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. We just read how seven, even eight principal men and the leader of the church will destroy the Assyrian. For he says, by the strength of my hand have I done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. Well, he will destroy this country. We've already read that. But then when he comes against the church, he's going to be coming up against something altogether different. He keeps bragging, and my hand is found as a nest to the riches of the people, as one gathers eggs that are left. Have I gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. Nobody can resist me, he says. Want to bet? Shall the axe boast itself against him that hews therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shakes it? As if the rod should shake itself against him that lifted up? Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood? Therefore shall the Eternal, the Eternal of hosts, send among his fat ones, that's the Assyrian, leanness. And under his glory he shall kindle a fire like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his Holy One for a flame. Who is the anointed one that God uses? We've already discussed that. The two witnesses and seven or eight other men, perhaps. 
uh, is who he designates there in Micah 5. Ah, wind got me. And shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they shall be as when a standard bearer faints. The one who's leading the charge faints. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them. A little child can't write big numbers. There won't be very many left. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Eternal, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. I think he mentions, yeah, he mentions Gideon down here again in verse 26. We'll get there. We already saw it once, how God is going to do this with a very small group of people. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, so again, here we're talking of national, not just the church, yet a remnant of them shall return out of all this destruction of the Assyrian after he destroys our nation. There will be some who will return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. It's going to be on down the road. For the eternal God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. So he says this is going to be all-consuming, all the way across the land. Therefore, thus says the eternal God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion. Now he says the, the Assyrian is going to come across and consume the whole land. But those dwelling in Zion are not to be afraid of the Assyrian. Didn't we see that in Micah 5? I'm going to make you a sharp threshing instrument. That's repeated, I think, in Isaiah 41, I believe it is. And that he will send out a small number of people to destroy the Assyrian. So everybody else had better be afraid. But those who dwell in Zion, wherever Zion is, better know, hadn't you? You better be righteous and you better be dwelling in Zion. Be not afraid of the Assyrian. Now you see why I want to approach the information we have and see if we can prove one way or another where Zion and Jerusalem are. See how important this is? Everybody else is going to get it in the neck. And those that are in the right place doing the right thing don't have to fear. He shall smite you with a rod and shall lift up his staff against you after the manner of Egypt. In other words, he will try to enslave you as you were enslaved in Mitzrayim. Now, he doesn't say he's going to consume you. He says he'll raise up his rod against you and smite you and try to make slaves out of you. Now, that's his people dwelling in Zion, or that will wind up fleeing to Zion, building Jerusalem first, and then the abomination is set up when they invade Jerusalem one last time. And we have to flee for a place of safety. And then he goes on to elaborate. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and my anger in their destruction. So it says in Micah 5 that the church, the daughter of Zion, is to go out against, with a very small number of people, the Assyrian, when he comes into our land. That is being stated in a little bit different words right here in Isaiah as well. 
You that dwell in Zion, the Assyrian will come after you, just as he does in Micah 5. But they will be destroyed. And the Eternal of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. Again, a reference to Gideon's army. A very small number of men God chose. They didn't kill anybody themselves. They just had the lights, smashed the lanterns, and yelled. And 300,000 people killed themselves. It's going to happen the same way again. We don't have to go out and shoot them. God is going to take care of it. Micah 5 is very much a companion scripture to this right here. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, okay. Uh, As God's rod was upon the Red Sea, and he parted it. He said, I'm going to do the same thing to the Assyrians. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off your shoulder and his yoke from off your neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Who are the two anointed ones in Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11? Now, the anointing of Christ could also be because he's been anointed King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's the one that's directing all of this, but he has human instruments not just the two, but seven or eight principal leaders who will go out against the Assyrian, and the whole church doesn't have to fight. But it is the anointing of God that makes the difference. He has come to Aath. He has passed to Migron. At Michmash, he has laid up his carriages. Uh, Speaking of the Assyrian, uh, who has laid his yoke on the nation or the, the cities of Israel. They're gone over the passage. They've taken up their lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid. Gibeah of Saul is fled. Everybody's going to be afraid of the Assyrian. Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim. Cause it to be heard unto Laish, O poor Anatoth. I think that's quite interesting. But it's going to be maybe the villages that are set up as Jerusalem. Anatoth may be one of them. We named it that. Anatoth means answer. But everything about Anatoth isn't good. It talks about rebellious men of Anatoth. It talks about poor Anatoth here. Now, look up. I had never done this before till the other day, but it, it refers me back to First uh, Samuel 25:44. So I went back to see what that's talking about. It's talking about the time when Saul took David's wife, Michael, away from him and gave her to a man who lived at Galim, uh, Falpi, a son of Laish, who lived at Galim. So what's it saying here of poor Anatoth? It's comparing it to the time that Saul took David's wife and gave her to somebody else. Doesn't it seem sometimes like we're being given away? Maybe we'll see that uh, increase at some point. But he, he mentions all these places fleeing and are in trouble, but then he says, this, 
This is you're going to feel like you're going to, you're being taken away and given to somebody else. I think maybe in a in a larger sense, we've been reading here about how Christ will take care of us, how He will rule us. He's to become our husband, right? We're the first fruits. We're we're candidates to be the bride of Christ. So he talks about the virgin daughter that is to become his wife, and yet he's going to send the Assyrian upon us, and it's going to seem like he's giving us to the Assyrian instead of to Christ. It's going to look that grim. I think that's the meaning of this. But he'll save us. He's going to let it come at us. Now believe me, if we're gathered here at Jerusalem, and we see all these armies coming, and they take it over and set up the abomination, he tells us to flee for our very lives, right? Whether it's this Jerusalem or that one, when you see those armies coming, he says flee. That is going to be scary. You may see tanks and helicopters and drones and and marching men and uh, air support. Who knows? It's going to be scary. And if you would feel like Christ said he would protect us and we're his own, we're his wife, and he's about to give us to the Assyrian. But he's not. It's just going to feel like it. It's going to seem like it. Oh, poor Anatoth, here come the Assyrians. And these other villages. So it's talking about the villages around Jerusalem. Anatoth, uh, if you, you look some of these up, they were the cities of Judah around Jerusalem. As yet shall he remain at Nob that day. He shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. He's going to come up with his armies and shake his fist at us. Now, I think this probably is speaking of something prior to that flight that I just described when they set up the abomination of desolation. Yeah, that's going to be a scary time, too, where you might feel like you're giving away. But it says that the Assyrian, when he comes... The church will destroy like Gideon did. So we're talking about two different events here. Maybe I was kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit there. See, the Assyrian comes and destroys this country. Then he says the church is going to destroy the Assyrian, or God through the church. Then the New World Order apparently is going to come in, and they're the ones that are going to take and shake their fist against uh, Jerusalem ultimately with their armies. But this is the Assyrian who comes first. Uh, before, maybe it be even before Jerusalem is built. I think it is. Because when this nation is taken by the Assyrian and the Confederates that are with them, uh, they'll also want to take the church. God says, well, the Assyrian's going to be destroyed. So it's a new world order later that sets up the, the abomination. So this is, this is two times we get confronted. Once ahead of time, after the land is destroyed by this confederacy that's coming, and then later on by those who come and defile the temple. That's, that's the little horn there of Daniel who comes later and sets up the abomination and brings armies to do it. So that's a, that's a separate event. This one we win. 
but he's going to come and shake his fist against us, and we're going to send people out, and God says, I'll destroy them just like I did in Midian with Gideon. Behold, the eternal, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. Remember this one back here, a little few verses back, where the Assyrian was bragging about how he had captured this one, captured that one, and now you're my next victim. Just get ready, because I'm coming, and you can't stop me. But those who considered themselves mighty trees, tall trees of the forest, the Assyrian, are going to be chopped down and humbled. And he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. God is going to send a mighty one uh, against them. They can shake their fist against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. I think I'm pointing at it. I beg here. Now, if I'm wrong, I need to find out if I'm wrong. We need to know where it is, because that's where God is going to save his people, the church. And it's going to be at the hill of Zion and the mount of Jerusalem is where it's going to be. That means that his people will be there, wherever that is. So now what do you think? Should we begin to examine and find out one way or another if that's in over there or if that's here? So maybe tomorrow we can start into that and start looking at the information that you and I have compiled and see uh, what we come up with. So let's uh, let's consider that. Let's con- let's pray about it. Let's keep an open mind. I could be wrong. I could be. I don't think I am, but there's always that possibility, isn't there? And if there's that possibility, then we better find out. <laughs> we better know. Because I want to be in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. And I pray that pretty pretty often. And I hope that you do as well. Because what's coming down on this nation and this world real soon now is going to be dire. And we better be doing what we should be doing at the right place. Okay, let's stop for today.